You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 15th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. So, good news, everyone. Oh, I love good news. <laughs> you like what good news? So rare these days, yes. yes. I uh, won my first of two appeals on the Tobinick case today. Yes. Quite Ooh, well. Okay. okay. So, what does That's... that mean? What does that mean? Okay, so just for a quick update, a few years ago, I and the SGU and uh, actually a couple other entities were sued by a physician called Edward Tobinick because of an article that I wrote on science-based medicine where I said that the treatments that he was giving and advertising were not adequately supported by evidence. Something, How dare you? Yeah, something were I they, want were to they do. pure energy entities? <laughs> <laughs> so he sued me. Now – you know, clearly I was just expressing my professional opinion on science-based medicine. So he had to concoct this theory that my article, my, my web, you know, web post on science-based medicine was commercial speech and that I was interfering <sighs> with his business and it was unfair competition, et cetera. He also, you know, sued me for straight up libel and everything, but that's a really hard sell in the U.S., you know, because of that pesky First Amendment, right? Yeah, yeah, that thing. <laughs> So anyway, I won the case in summary judgment, you know, which basically mm-hmm. means the judge said, yeah, you have no chance of winning. Uh, you're as a matter of law, you know, all the facts are in as a matter of law, you can't possibly win. So yes. I'm- and that's early on in the case, right? That's a judge after hearing initial arguments. This isn't after the whole thing happens. It's just the, I the first step. I wouldn't say early on. I mean, it was just <laughs> like after a year and a half, but it was before yeah. – the court case, so yeah, there was no court case with a jury or anything. It was just motions and you know, basically trading motions back and forth. It, takes a, it took a while to get to that point. We had to go through discovery, and it was you know, it's a huge pain. Whatever. I actually won two big motions. I won an anti-slap against the California uh, plaintiff, and then I won the. I had the rest of the charges dropped based upon summary judgment. So Tobinick, who's Going through multiple lawyers on this case, like just working his way through, I guess, whatever, whoever will keep the case going, he appealed. Uh, and then uh, – so that's been in the works for like a year and a half now, the uh-huh. appeal. And then we asked for for fees based on yep. the fact that he was you know, taking the case beyond all reason. And we were awarded pretty substantial fees, not our full cost of the case, you know, about half of what we spent on the case, um, which was good. And he appealed that as well. He appealed, you know, the awarding of fees. So today we got the judgment from the, this is a federal case, right? So this is the appellate court for the 11th circuit. And apparently there are three judges, you know, that make that decide the case. And, uh, the (laughs) oral arguments were a couple of weeks ago. So this is a pretty quick turnaround. For them, I think it was like two or three weeks ago. It was oral arguments, and they came down with a decision. So, a th- couple of good things. One, it was unanimous, so there was no dissenting opinion of any of any of the judges, mm-hmm. and they uh, sided with me on every single issue. So they didn't walk anything back. There were no caveats. It was just, yep, we affirm every th- every one of the decisions of the lower court. They re- they denied. Every appeal. Well, awesome. So game over, right? Well, no, 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 no. no not pretty, yet. Well, okay, pr- sort of pretty much. Well, uh, let me can read your, he do anything else? Yeah, he But you can. said it's only part one, so. 
Well, yeah. So first of all, we, well, I mean, I think he's probably not going to fare well on the second appeal, given how thoroughly he was slapped down on this one. So Is the second appeal for something different? To clarify, there were two appeals. He appealed to the summary judgment and the anti-slap decision to basically be winning the case. I and see. Then he, the second appeal was of the awarding of fees. So I won the appeal against the summary judgment and anti-slap. So they stand. So I yeah. The, the so it's quite likely that he yeah. So it's quite back. likely he's yeah. going to fail on the um, on the uh, on the fees. Not Plus, only fail, but the judges will say, back? "Give you more they, money." I mean, they right. could. Well, we're going to we're going to we're going to add on all of the money for the appeals. You know? Sure. Oh, Which of is, course. It's automatic for the anti- damages. It's here. automatic for the anti-slap, but uh, whatever. We're going to try to get as much as we can back. You know, for the money that we're having to sink into this thing. So, for all intents and purposes, like in terms of um, precedent, in terms of yeah. importance of this case, the most meaningful portion is over. Now it's yes. really uh. just about functionality. Are we going to be suffering financially because of the case any more than the skeptic guide and you personally, Steve, already have? Yeah, so uh, that's correct. I mean, that this was, you know, it's a it's an appellate court. They set pretty big precedent. The only place to go above them is the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. So mm. Tobinick is probably he has a he has. I'm not going to guess what he what he will do, but I'll tell you a few things he can do. He can ask to have the case heard before the entire entire Eleventh Circuit. Well, how many are there? Not sure, but it's more than three, right? So we can say I want all the judges to decide, and but they can turn him down for that, and right. he can he can appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, Which and, is and they, crazy. They, they yeah, take so on, yeah, I think you know, that would be low probability. That they, yeah, pro- low probability. I suspect low probability that they'll take the case unless they. So the the there are elements of the case that the Supreme Court may decide to just quickly decide to to because you know like when oh, the, you said Supreme, do you mean appellate? No, no, Supreme Court. The Supreme Court oh, may okay, decide sorry. may decide here. So the circuit courts, right? Mm-hmm. They set precedent for their circuit. They can disagree with each other, but in in the elements of this case, they pretty much are all agreeing with each other. But the Supreme Court, they they usually get involved when the appellate courts disagree with each other. So then they resolve the dispute. But they also might say, okay, we'll just make a decision on this case. That way we set the precedent for everybody rather than having to go circuit by circuit. You know what I mean? So there's right. a, gotcha. like so like for example, one question that comes up is does the state anti-slap law apply on a federal case. And now several of the districts uh, have ruled that they do. But the Supreme Court might want to set that as universal precedent rather than going circuit by circuit. You think that's important enough where they might do that? I don't know. I'm not a legal scholar, but I mean that, you know, from what I understand, it's that's a possibility, you know. Okay. Uh, Okay. But probably again, probably not. But again, listen, that's why they would do it because there are elements of the case for which they want to make a decision right. and clarify and establish, you know, universal precedent. But yeah, they pretty much use be, you at that point. That would be a decision they would be making. There's yeah. nothing Tobinick can do to can, like. Can, can he appeal the appeal? No, no. Well, no, I didn't think so. No, he no. can't. Yeah. Well, yeah, except to say I'd like, I'd like to appeal full. to all the full judges, which – Oh, so he can ask for that. You can ask for it, but they gotcha. can turn him down. He's not guaranteed yeah. it. And mm-hmm. then he can try to appeal to the Supreme Court and they can turn him down. So he has no more guaranteed appeals. And those are his only two real options at That's this it. Point. And he's done, done. And he could sue me over something else, but this case is, would be done, done. 
And then um, in terms of the fees, um, we're pretty far along on that, but that could be another year you know, from where we are now. And because the uh, um, appellate court hadn't, hasn't yet ruled on uh, the fees, whether it's the total amount or yeah. you know, I'm sure they could change a lot of things, we haven't seen a dime from him yet. Right. No. Right. No. No. But, and, you know, so everything's out of pocket, both for you personally and for the SGU. Like, yeah. It's just such a bummer because it's one of those things where, like, even when justice works in the American legal it's system, it'll break. It'll break screwed. You. Yeah, yeah it's like well, it's, there's no justice for the poor. You know, it's part of this strategy almost from the beginning. They want to try to force you into a corner because they know a lot of people can't afford to go through the lengthy legal process because it does bankrupt lots of people. This yeah, way. so they Absolutely. cave. Absolutely. And that's, that's the manipulation of to. the justice system. It's that's, that's, that's not justice. That's why we need anti-slap laws. We need anti-slap laws so that if you do get sued frivolously as a way of suppressing your free speech, you could shut it down quickly and get your fees covered. Yes, so yes. that you can't be intimidated out of free speech because of you know, even if you're right, it'll cost you a ridiculous amount of money to prove. That's it right. Court. I mean, Absolutely. geez, think about the heavy hands with endless pockets that could put that could oh, shut God. anybody up. It's it's well, scary. It, well, it shows you like corporations have an amazing amount of power just because they have the legal team and the and the money behind them. And the other thing about this was the the emotional strain mm-hmm. of this court case. I mean. I know what it did to me. I can only imagine how much harder it must have been for Steve. Like there was, there was a good six months where I was losing my mind over this. This was, it was so painful to deal with because the injustice was extraordinary. Yeah. It seems like those few times when we see these First Amendment cases, like a young teenager is suing their school because they told them they couldn't wear a t-shirt, you know, these like these basic free speech cases um, that kind of capture the attention of the media. It seems like more often than not, those people are on the prosecuting side and they probably have pro bono attorneys. It just seems crazy that, you know, a 17-year-old or like a regular schmo could afford to go all the way to the Supreme Court unless there was a group like the ACLU who was doing it pro bono because they knew that setting certain precedent would be important for future litigation. It's just – I don't know. It's – it really – bums me out because I have so much faith in in this system because there's so many like checks and balances. And that's why obviously this political climate has been really scary for a lot of people because the system itself is being tested. But when you see places where there's such obvious flaws and where such easy abuses can come through, it's disheartening for sure. Let me read you just the one, one paragraph from the decision because I think this is sort of the critical legal aspect is whether or not my article could be considered commercial speech, therefore subject to different regulation than if it was just, you know, private speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, we have memberships and, you know, there, I advertise for like my teaching company courses on the website, you know, so Tobinick had this funnel theory that I was sort of funneling visitors to the websites into this revenue generating activity. And therefore, every article I published is therefore commercial speech. This is what they said. To be sure, neither the placement of the articles next to revenue-generating advertising nor the ability of the reader to pay for a website description would be sufficient in this case to show a liability causing economic motivation for Dr. Novella's informative articles. Both advertising and subscriptions are typical features of newspapers, whether online or in print, but the Supreme Court has explained that if a newspaper's profit motive were determinative, all aspects of its operations, from the selection of news stories to the choice of editorial position, would be subject to regulation if it could be established that they were conducted with the view toward increased right. sales. Such right. a basis for regulation clearly would be incompatible with the First Amendment. 
it. Hello, mm-hmm. that's what Absolutely. we say from the beginning. Absolutely, it, right? Every because newspapers sell subscriptions; they have yeah, advertising it's one or the sections. other. It, therefore, every article in it, you know, would be therefore commercial speech. Or if you sell a book for profit, the book itself is therefore commercial speech. So the mm-hmm. Supreme Court has already decided, no, that's not the case. That would be incompatible with First Amendment free speech if you could so easily transform anything that's even incidentally associated with revenue generation into commercial speech. So that his theory was really doomed from the beginning. Um, yeah. Right. But he's continuing mm-hmm. to pursue it, and that was also a large part of uh, why I was awarded as, as many fees as I was, because he would not give up that theory even when it was repeatedly slapped down. It's like, no, Ugh. here's the law. It's not commercial speech. Stop it. You know, but he wouldn't give it up. So what would be an example of commercial speech? Would that be like if you taught a seminar to the public and you like – you know, were really libelous or slanderous throughout the seminar about somebody. No, it has. It was, uh, you could directly so, prove that it was because you were getting paid for it. Commercial speech has to propose a transaction. It has to primarily be about a commercial transaction, right? So, it not well, if I'm expressing my opinions in an opinion piece, the fact that there's commercial activity happening around it is not enough. You know, the, the, I can't it, even think of an example when there like, is. Like, for example, guy. if I if, if <laughs> I had written an article saying. You know, don't go see Dr. Tobinick because he doesn't know what he's doing. Come see me and get treated for the same thing by me. I'll fix you. Oh, I see. Right. And you would be directly funneling him yeah, to, exactly. to get paid by those So people. And that, that's – Tobinick essentially accused me of doing that even though it's quite obvious there's nothing like that at all in the articles no. that I wrote. And I don't even treat the same diseases that he treats. Uh, it, it was really an absurd theory in my opinion. But well, that's what, if, what it, that's what it would have taken. Gotcha. You know, I was actually proposing some kind of commercial transaction, which I which I wasn't. Hmm. Well, what if you worked for the president and you were trying to sell like hmm. the president's daughter's stuff? You know, and, and yeah, some you can't do that. Pr- oh yeah, no one would is do that, that Bob. It's you can't do well, that. that. That's against the okay. law anyway. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, well, so well, there is great, that. great news. To, yeah, one <laughs> more step. Yes. Yep. Yep. Couple yeah. more steps to go, but one more. Oh God damn. Yeah, that's the other thing <gasps> that you don't know until you get involved in a lawsuit is it takes years. Yeah. Yeah. To for like the simplest things. And, well, and that's congrats, just it. everyone. This yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's what makes it hurt so so very much is that this couldn't really be much more cut and dried. Really, I mean, it's <laughs> from day one this was obvious. Obvious. If there was any nuance or subtlety to it, we could probably double or triple all of this. All of this nonsense, just because there was a little bit of nuance. It's, to I don't it. think it's about nuance. I really think it's about a lack of precedent. That's why, like the whole point, right, is trying to get these anti-slap um, proceedings well, in yes. place because they don't exist. Um, it w- it wasn't cut and dry. It, like, well, here's the there thing: there always has to be somebody who goes through all the bullshit so <laughs> that the next person doesn't have to go through the bullshit. Here's here's why it can take a long time because if you come up with as the plaintiff, you come up with a novel theory, the court really wants to indulge you in that, right? They don't want to shoot it down. They want to say, okay, fine, you have your day in court. You have some theory about how this should all work. Go ahead, convince us. And that takes a long time. You know, then you mm-hmm. get discovery. They're just the, the process takes so long. And before the just okay, you've had every chance in the world to explain your theory. I'm not buying it wrong. And then he yeah. appealed. And there's you go, boom, another two years tacked on to the whole process because he decided to to appeal. So it's that's all it takes is just that you want you have some new point that you want to make and boom you could you know tie things up for years 
I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure how much I agree with that because then, then – I'm, I'm saying hope? that's the way it is. I'm saying that's the way it is. I'm not saying yeah, that's but then, it should be. Okay, but then what hope could there possibly be for anti for anti-slap everywhere then? If that's the case, well, because the anti-slap specific- No, no, it's not because the anti-slap is a law that specifically cuts through all that. It says that before you get to do anything, you have to prove you have a case. And if you don't meet that minimal proof, then you lose and you pay the other guy's fees. Right. Boom. That's it. Yeah, because I mean, it's bizarre that we don't have that yet. It's bizarre that it. We don't have it at the federal level. There's a number of states that do mm-hmm. have states it, like Cal- yeah, California does have it. And yeah. I used California's anti-slap in order to get that portion of the case shut down a long time ago. Damn right. And, yeah. and there's guarantee in so many places. Well, two states, yeah, California and oh. Florida. So the California Florida. did. Florida at the time didn't, but now it does. But we really need to get one in every state. And then there's the question of should we have a federal anti-slap, which yeah. was interesting. It could convert all of these cases to federal cases, which might be a good thing. But then, but it might be. A- but well, it, would, it could it could you know burden the federal courts. But but in the meantime, yeah. could we incorporate in one of these anti-slap states? So the short answer is yes. Some people uh, advise that you do incorporate mm-hmm. in a state that has a good anti-slap law because then you would offer you some protection. And that also provides an incentive for the states to have good anti-slap laws. So like, for example, if Connecticut had a good anti-slap law, we could say, hey, New York Times, incorporate over the over the border in Connecticut and you'll be protected by our anti-slap law. Screw yeah. New York. They don't have a good anti-slap law. And then New York would be like, no, we need their revenue. They yeah. make good sales. We better tax. pass a good or, anti-slap uh, law. Yes. Yeah, so that is how it works. Yep. It's critical. Yeah. It's, uh, there could be a domino effect because it's good for business. It's good for citizens yeah. and it's good for business. It's And you know how often do you have a law that is, that is both of those things? Both. That's true. Yeah. The crazy thing is I'm just wondering how many people from other countries, maybe not England because we know that they have notoriously like crap libel yeah. laws um, hmm. and First Amendment protections. They don't call it the First Amendment there. Um, or yeah, at least historically. They don't have, have a First Amendment. But in other yeah. countries who are listening who are like, how is this even continuing to go on if the judge already ruled that the lawsuit was frivolous? And we're like, yeah, exactly. Well, That's the complicated yeah. part. Of That's the point of an anti-slap is that it short circuits yep. the legal process. It, it bypasses a lot of the procedure so that you can get to a much quicker and cheaper resolution. That's the whole it's point. It's kind of like triage. Like, you know, don't even bother working on this guy. He's dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He'll be dead in 10 minutes anyway. <laughs> That's horrible. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> Pass me one of them toe tags. <laughs> Well, that's how, that's how triage worked on MASH, right? Remember? Yeah, oh, yeah. Exactly. Everything I learned just, about triage, I learned from MASH. Yeah. Just right on their foreheads and lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that? No, that's Band of Brothers, but yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the news items. Kara, oh. you're going to tell us about the monkey mirror test. I am. This so is you guys, awesome. I reflected yeah, you guys on have this heard of the mirror test, right? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is this a well-known thing? I know that coming up through the ranks in, in kind of psychology and neuroscience, we talked about about the mirror test a lot. And it's kind of always been a gold standard for scientists to say whether or not a species is self-aware. So the mirror test is pretty simple. Um, let's say there's an animal that a uh, scientist is, is researching behaviorally. They will make a mark on the animal's face somewhere, ch- generally on their forehead, maybe like with lipstick speaking of without um, them without them knowing without them knowing yeah Yeah, and that's the important part they can't really feel that the mark has been made on them because that would moot everything so um and then later kind of in a disconnected way they will show that that animal it's 
own reflection in a mirror. They'll hold a mirror up to it. And if the animal can recognize, or at least this is the hypothesis, if they can recognize that it is their own reflection in the mirror and not some other member of their species, they'll reach up to their own face and kind of um, touch where the mark is or wipe the mark off or explore it somehow. They often will start by touching the mirror first, but um, organisms or species that do seem to pass the mirror test, uh, many great apes do. There's some claims that like dolphins do and maybe elephants. There have been, you know, some, can, you know, kind of contentious claims about other species, but generally great apes, but not other primates tend to. And so for a lot of um, researchers over the years, and this is what always happens, right, with science communication and oftentimes with science education, which is a bummer, is there's this cut and dry line that's drawn in the sand. Pass the mirror test, they're self-aware. They don't pass the mirror test, they're probably not self-aware. Although many... um Researchers argue this should be maybe a little more nuanced than that. Maybe there's other ways for animals to be self-aware. Maybe it's not about whether or not they um, can see themselves in the mirror, but whether or not they even understand the concept of a mirror or how a mirror works. So what happened here is that some researchers um, who published in <laughs> Penis, um, eh. Penis, sorry, uh, <laughs> Proceedings of the Natu- <laughs> uh, National Academies of Sciences, they, they published uh, an article in January of this year called Spontaneous Expression of Mirror Self-Recognition in Monkeys After Learning Precise Visual Proprioceptive Association for Mirror Images. So their kind of point was, maybe it should take a little longer for them to learn how. We're going to train them and see if they can develop mere self-recognition later because generally speaking, um, monkeys don't often develop it. They were using rhesus monkeys and they've been shown not to not to really have good mere self-recognition. There's another way to do a mirror test that I left out and this is how they did it. Um, instead of putting a mark on them without them knowing, they use uh, like a laser pointer and they will point the laser pointer to something in the environment that the monkey can only see if they're looking in a mirror. So let's say they're sitting in a chair with a head restraint and the laser pointer is pointed like directly to their left on a wall that's behind them. So when they look in the mirror, they can see it, but they can't turn their head to see it. So the idea is, will they recognize that it's actually behind them, not in front of them because it's being reflected in the mirror? Um and they did. They trained these monkeys to do that. It, 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 eventually, they could pass the test with a lot of training. But as many people would argue, you know, um, operant conditioning tests from the – what is it? The 20s? The 40s? I have no idea when Skinner was alive. <laughs> but from way back when, you could train a pigeon to do almost anything so long as you reward them with food. How do we know that they're really self-aware and self-conscious? Well, what happened is that – and the interesting distinction with this article, which is why a lot of researchers are pointing to it, is that they overtrained them. So even once they kind of proved that they could consistently recognize um, the laser pointer in the mirror, they continued to train them for another couple of weeks. And what they noticed was that in the monkeys that had been mirror test trained or mirror self-recognition trained versus the um, – the monkeys that weren't, the control monkeys, after the fact, when they were in their own enclosures where they had also included mirrors, the monkeys that were trained on mirror self-recognition used a mirror in an explorative way, which they think really is proof that there was some self-recognition developed here and that really they just had to learn the function of a mirror. Yeah, they looked at their own junk. 
Yeah, they would hold it up to their genitals because they couldn't see them from, you know, the direction of their face. So they might explore their bodies by holding a mirror up the same way we use a rearview mirror in the car, the same way a dentist uses a mirror in your mouth to get to places that you can't see with direct line of sight. That is really cool. It's super cool. And also... An interesting point mentioned in the um, popular science article, I can't remember if it's mentioned in the um, publication, the scientific publication, was that there's good reason to think that the mirror test is bound by culture and bound by understanding of a mirror because children, very young children don't pass the mirror test, right? When they're like two years old, they often don't pass and they develop that skill. But children in certain parts of the East won't pass the mirror test at the age of six. And that's because they're not exposed to mirrors, Right. And so it's not that they don't have self-awareness by six. I don't think anybody would argue that uh. a six-year-old doesn't have a sense of self-concept or self-awareness. It's that they don't know what a mirror does. So you have to teach them that a mirror is a reflection of themselves before. Of course, we can teach them that quickly with language, but you can't do that with monkeys. So it's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, it's, I have a question about killer, though. I'm interested to know, Steve, if maybe you have insight into yeah. this. Because it's always a given when I read these articles. They always say, just like how your dog looks in the mirror and thinks it's another dog. They always say that. Dogs don't pass the mirror test. They look in the mirror. They think it's another dog. When killer looks in the mirror, it's like he's not seeing anything. He doesn't react it's almost like the mirror is part of just an extension of the wall because I've tried to hold him up to the mirror and kind of train him and point to things and have him react. It's like he can't see a mirror. Maybe what he's is nearsighted. Is he a vampire dog? There's maybe there's I a know. Reflection? Isn't that weird? Clearly. You just have to be very cautious. And this is, the I think, the lesson of this article. Be cautious about inferring what's going on yes, in the mind of somebody else. So this whole process reminds me of the neurological exam, and I teach this every day, is that mm-hmm. you? it's very challenging often to interpret the, the neurological exam. So like with the mirror test, we give patients a, a series of tests, you know, do this, touch your left ear with your right thumb, say this, whatever. And, and those are all designed to try to isolate some kind of neurological function so we could see if it's working or not. But you never fully isolate any neurological function, right? Yeah, you have to correlate it with like imaging and with other things. Well, it's not 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 even that. Just in the exam itself, you have to you have to correlate it with other parts of the exam. You have yeah. to triangulate. It's like okay, so if I do these four or five things, the the piece that consistently gives the patient the most trouble is anything to do with language processing. So that's probably mm-hmm. where their problem is. But each task may also involve vision or attention or working memory. Right. All these other things are involved with any of the tasks. Yeah. And they may be culturally bound. They may rely on certain senses that maybe are dull that have nothing to do with the brain. Right. So, yeah, with these monkeys, I mean, you don't know that. So saying that, you know, an animal either has or doesn't have a sense of self is a really abstract idea. And, you know, I would be very cautious about inferring that they don't. I mean, I think it's a lot easier to say that they do. Like if you, if, you say it's on, they're on a spectrum though, Steve? Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, that's, absolutely. that's no, absolutely. I think most people think that animals, yeah, but is there a threshold though? So I would say this is interesting. I wrote about this recently because, um, Daniel Dennett wrote an essay, actually wrote a book about consciousness, and but he was mm-hmm. talking about human-level consciousness, this idea that we can be in our own heads, we have a sense of who we are, and we can think about ourselves and our future and how we feel, you know, a fully integrated sense of self, self, how did that evolve, and what are the antecedents, what led up to that, and do animals have it, and to what de- degree? So, yeah. 
Well, I think just sort of the vague concept of consciousness is a, is a continuum, you know, from insects up to people. But the sense of self, you know, that's the kind of thing that may have, there's a threshold effect, you know, and you, and until you get to a certain threshold, you may not have it at all. Cause that, that, that's how, you know, the brain works is that some, subsystems in the brain may be on or off like for example you can't be awake without unless you have 40 percent of your cortex working right if you have 39 percent of your cortex you can't achieve that threshold of wakefulness really? you know, wake, wakefulness is a threshold phenomenon maybe uh, having a sense of self is also a kind of threshold phenomenon and so it may not be just a pure continuum, but we don't know because we can't read yeah. the minds of other animals. So, yet that's the problem. There's no um, construct validation. Yeah, exactly. You never know unless an animal can tell you. So you have to infer based on behavior, right? Which has always been a problem in behavioral psychology. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't still pursue it. It doesn't mean that we don't. Get it's just really, really great slow. And that's why I think that researchers and then science journalists, by proxy, just have to be really, really careful with the language that they yeah. use, like. This shows that the uh, monkey is capable of recognizing itself in a mirror. Then this shows that the monkey is capable of using that mirror recognition further to explore other aspects of their body, which shows some higher order processing. Sure. Nobody would argue with that. Does it mean that they have the capability of like what Maslow called self-actualization? I don't know. Are they contemplating their own death? I don't know. Those kinds of questions are um, right. Well, having a sense of self and having a sense of time are two different things. That's being true. being able to think about yourself in the future, you know, you could have a sense of self without being able to think what's going to happen to me tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, because some some elephants might seem to have a contemplation of death, but they might not have as much uh, reflection that we might, yeah. you know. Uh, quantify and like dogs that is a good example of a dog every time i come home it's like i've been gone for a month yeah right <laughs> he's always yeah. so excited to see uh, me whether i've been gone for five minutes or five hours i know that he my dogs no oh difference. man they jump on me like i was in a afghanistan on, exactly. on, on the mission for two time. years and coming back and you see those videos you see those videos and it's funny because they they break your heart and you're like oh that dog he's missed him so much and then you realize he doesn't know how long he's been gone. <laughs> i know i know <laughs> <laughs> you guys know that there isn't one non-mammal that's passed the mirror test? One non-mammal? Oh, you're right. Dol- I was like, dolphins, derp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mammals you, can't live in the ocean. Can you guess? Um, <laughs> there is one. Oh, uh, oh, it was magpies. Yeah, magpie. Yeah. yeah, good. But yeah, that d- would make sense, right? We've seen a lot of like really advanced. But they have in- really good problem solving. So are they just doing mm-hmm. really good problem solving? You know, or yeah, are they are they tricking? Yeah. Are they so many so many ways you could break really it down? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Think about really that good tiny brain. They've got the tiniest brain. What? Yeah, the but hell? their brains are so different. Yes, than the that's brains. it. That's it. They, it's organized differently. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about Im- immigration and crime. This is obviously a very hot topic political issue, but there is a very specific empirical question at its core, and that's all I really want to talk about. Often I'll, uh, I will become interested in trying to answer one very narrow empirical question. Like a little while ago in a discussion, it came up, what was 
the effect on employment of raising the minimum wage? And you might think that there's a really objective answer out there, <laughs> but uh, but I, honestly, I could not mm-hmm. convince myself that I knew what the bottom line answer to that question was. I'm sure people are going to email me and tell me they know the answer, but you're probably cherry picking because they're <laughs> convincing themselves. And it's always yeah. more complex yeah. than you think. And that's because it's because it's economics. Basically, you could talk to a liberal e- economist and they have one answer. You talk to a conservative economist, they have a different answer, and that's basically where you end up. You know, and it's hard to find an objective answer to that question. But anyway. This question is, do immigrants commit more crimes than native-born citizens? Uh, and we're gonna, I'm going to restrict this to the United States because that's, a, that's mm. a tough enough question without trying to answer it for different countries. And you can break down immigrants into legal and illegal immigrants. Interestingly, I know a lot of people want to use undocumented immigrant as sort of the politically correct term, but the, a lot of the literature just says legal versus illegal because it's a little bit more technically correct. So I'm just going to use the, that terminology non-judgmentally. That's what's in the technical literature. So, and by the way, what's interesting is when I wrote about this and I posted on Facebook, so many people thought they had to be so clever by saying, well, if they come into the country illegally, they, by definition, they've committed a crime. So it's 100%. It's like, okay, first of all, coming into the country illegally is actually not a criminal offense. It's a civil offense. Did you know that? So, Mm-mm, yeah, so... The, in a way, they haven't committed a crime. They've just committed a civil offense because it's not. But in any case, whatever you but think it can about be prosecuted, that, prosecuted, right? No, they just get deported. Oh, you're right. Yeah. That's just a default. They don't even get yeah. a day in court. They yeah. just get deported. Yeah, they just get deported. Uh. So anyway, but obviously, we're not counting that because that's kind of you know, pointless. The, the whole point is: Are they a menace? You know, are they are the immigrants here either legal or illegal? Are they in any way a burden or a menace? Are they are they committing more crimes than people who were born here? Yes. Do we right. have to protect Correct. our borders because it is unsafe for immigrants to come into this country? Yeah. That's really the question. It's, this is a really hard question to answer. Is that the short answer is? It's really hard. It's very any sociological question where you're asking what's happening out there in the real world. It don't expect an easy answer. It's going to be it's going to be very difficult. What was one thing I was I was surprised about when I really dug through the data is that we don't have ironclad statistics on people in prison. And I'm like, well, why the hell not? Yeah, yeah, we, right. Why wouldn't we know? We intake them. Yeah, we, we have intake their them. Fingerprints. Why wouldn't there, we know? There has to be everything. an inventory, essentially, right? I mean, <laughs> it's it's like the one thing we should have an inventory for. Yeah, we you must. Would, you but would I think this would be a, just a, a central database. hub of data for it, right? But 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 apparently, a lot of the studies had to basically ask the inmates, you know, if they're native born or not, and oh, it was wow. self report. So I was shocked. Oh, really. That's, we're, we're going on self-report for somebody that went through a obviously went through the court system, and I mean, how do come? How do we not know everything about them? I don't get it. But anyway, I guess they're just not keeping it in a database, you know. So, yeah. but there are databases, but you know, the databases are are imperfect, or it's you know, it's only certain counties, or it's only federal versus state, and every way you slice it up differently, you get different answers, and they don't agree with each other. And so, it's you a get, quagmire. Basically. It's a quagmire. I, I read through a very good summary from a few years ago that went through basically every single study, what it showed, and what the flaws in the study were, and there isn't a single study without a significant flaw, which yeah. means that you need to really triangulate. You need to say, okay, where What's the where's the overlap? Yeah, right? where's the overlap? Meta analysis. Yeah, where? Yeah. But where, where's where are things pointing? Are they triangulating in any certain direction? So, uh, here's a couple of bottom lines that that I found. So, if you just look at 
prison populations. You get some mixed data, but it does appear that overall, especially if you here's the here's one key. If you further break it down by demographic, immigrants commit less fewer crimes or are less represented in the prison population than native-borns of the same demographics, right? So in other words, if you compare the same socioeconomic status, the same, you know, national the same race, but native-born versus immigrant, the some studies show that the immigrants are are, are like way like an order of magnitude, you know, fewer crimes. I wonder uh, if age has anything to do with that. In age, other words, age that's, apps, that's, that's exactly the age does because you know there, there's yeah. a there's a huge peak in age around eight, 16 to eighteen, and then it trails way off. And so, yeah, you that there, there's also lead time. Maybe they're just not here long enough to be exactly, worked their right. way through the system. So there's all kinds of different controls that you could do as well. So is that weighted for population? Like obviously to say there are less immigrants in prison than yeah, there it's are per like people. it's per hundred thousand. Yeah, it's per. It's always. It's the rate. It's not number of individuals. It's good because there's obviously way less immigrants than there are native-born yeah. people in America. Okay, that's right. Cool. Just making sure. Yeah, it's like they're X percent of the population and they're X percent of the prison population. Therefore, yes. they're committing per capita of you know fewer or more crimes. So uh, at the end of the day, I would say we don't really have a definitive answer, but the weight of the evidence seems to be, if anything towards maybe a little bit fewer crimes. But the, this really long review, basically their conclusion was we can't conclude from the evidence that they're committing more crimes. Right. Sure. Right. That's a safer thing. Yeah. To so say. they made the negative. So we can't say they're committing more crimes. We can't really say anything for sure. But we there certainly isn't a big signal here that's saying that they're committing more crimes than the native born. And some people interpret the data as they're probably committing fewer. And then – the responses are interesting because basically if you want to believe, you know, negative things about immigrants, you can say, well, they're just, they're hot. They're, you know, not reporting crimes because they don't want to get, because they're, you know, whatever, they're, they don't want to get deported. You know, they don't want to be caught up by ICE. Ice. Yeah. They don't want to be caught up by ICE. It's like, okay, but you know, they try to control that in the data and that they look at lots of different kinds of crimes. So you can't, you know, but people were, were so willing to cherry pick to make the outcome whatever they wanted to for political reasons. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. Now, the thing that <laughs> triggered my, my is. recent deep dive into this was a recent study which looked at the data in a different way, which is great. The more different ways you could look at the data, the, the I think better answer we can come to. They said, all right, we're not going to look at individuals. We're going to look at cities. And we're going to ask the question, do cities that have more immigrants – and most of these studies did not distinguish legal from, from illegal. It was just were you born in the United States or were you not born in the United States, you know? Not really got discriminating it. how you just got there. Citizen versus non-citizen? No, just were you born in the U.S. or not born in the U.S.? Because you could be not oh, okay. born in the U.S. and a right. citizen. Right? I understand. That's why I wanted to clarify yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah, it was not citizenship. It was just where were you born, basically. And then they said, all right, do cities that have more immigrants have more or less crime than cities that have fewer immigrants? And the the reason they did this was because some people argue that, well – even if the immigrants themselves are not getting caught for crimes as much as the native born, maybe because they're not committing as many or maybe because whatever, they're hiding better or, or underreporting. But because they are a strain on the city's resources, overall the conditions will deteriorate and they'll be, that will be reflected in more overall crime in the city. Um, so they looked at 
uh, a data set for 40 years of data up and up through 2010. And what they found was a pretty consistent negative correlation, meaning that cities with more immigrants had f- fewer crimes. It had less crime. So that kind of supports that end of the spectrum. And they said the results were were very solid. And they, it, was a, it was a huge data set. And they looked at both violent and property crime. So it was, you know, not just, uh, they looked at, you know, they looked at, let's see, um, violent property and also like drug related crimes and things like that from 1970 to 2010. So that was interesting. So, yeah, very, very interesting. So, you know, again, it's, we, this is an area that still needs more study. It's amazing. It's not amazing. It's predictable how political it is. Uh, but, but it is a very empirical question. You think we should be able to answer this question. But it, because it's sociological and it's, you know real world type of question, it's actually very difficult. But hard you, to tie it down. But here's the thing: with all the evidence that exists, you cannot say that illegal immigrants are criminals, right? That they're committing more crimes than the native population. That they're importing crime, it, mm-hmm. right? They they actually are no different than than native born. And by some ways of looking at the data, they actually commit less crimes. You know. And that is typically the political argument for minimizing. That's one. It's one. Um, now, it's one. here, there's one more question that that has been addressed in research as well. There is another study which asked a very interesting question. Okay, so illegal aliens are, you know, it looks like they commit fewer crimes overall than native-borns. Why is that? Is it because we're deporting the criminals? Or is it because they're self-selected, or or there was some other some other variable? Is it because of lead time or something else? And what they found was that you cannot explain the decrease because of deportation. Um, so it's not that we're deporting the immigrants who are criminals. And they said that the the best interpretation of the data is that they're self-selecting. You know, obviously this is not universal. There are you know people come here to sell drugs. You know, but there a lot of the immigrants who come here are self-selected for you know wanting to work and you know improve their, their family life, yeah. and better their life and are just not criminals. You know, it's not a random sampling of the population. It's actually a less criminal sampling of the population because that for whatever Imagine reason that. Imagine motivates that. them to come here. Yeah. What you know, what if more people just embrace that possibility and and said and believed it, just believed it it's, or yeah. even knew well, about that's it. That's the problem. It's, Bob, it's one aspect of it, Bob, too. There are other socioeconomic factors at play, but we're talking about specifically criminality in this particular Yeah, but I think example. if you if you if you put out a poll question asking that, most people would say no way and they wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't believe it. And Bob, it takes a long time to change perception. I mean, think think about how many years it takes for people's perceptions to change over social issues like this. I mean, think about homosexuality as an example. Well, I just had to hear read about the study and now I I believe it. Didn't take me long. Yeah, but that's but Bob. That's you. You're a trained skeptic, and you, <laughs> yeah. you've trained yourself to be able to change your opinion w- with evidence. The the average person, it's they're basing their feelings and their thoughts on their emotions and on we what sh- they want. We should get our voices out there and train other people. Maybe like do a podcast or something. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, <laughs> half the reason why I wanted to talk about this one is just an interesting empirical question, and it's a good it's a good exercise in how complicated sociological data can be. So if you just like just a Forget about all the political implications. Just try to answer that question. It's really interesting. But the other part is because I wrote about it on my blog, in the comments, 
if you read through the comments on my blog on Neurologica, <laughs> you will be rewarded with a stunning <laughs> example of motivated reasoning. And oh. let me direct you specifically no to the do. comments by Michael Egnor. You guys remember oh, Dr. Egnor. Of course. He, he likes you, Steve. He is the creationist <laughs> neurosurgeon who blogs for the Discovery Institute who – you know, we have been crossing blog swords over the years, and he occasionally shows up in the comments <laughs> to my blog, which is fine. He I would, you. I would show up to the comments in his blog, but the Discovery Institute blog has no comments. So, <laughs> whatever, for whatever reason. Anyway, um, I mean, you have to read them. Uh, in my opinion, he just outs himself as a full blown bigot. I mean, it's just go. amazing. At one point, he's oh, lecturing yeah. me about the cultural heritage of Italians. And it's just hilarious. Hey, of azul. Was he dissing Italians? Uh-oh, the brothers are getting angry. Yeah, right? So yeah, you, guys should, you guys should put a hit out on them. A lot of people <laughs> made the point that, you know, and this has been made in the literature as well, and some studies are like, what's interesting is that there is this belief that immigrants are criminals you know, more than, than the native population for 200 years. And it's never been true. In fact, I found yeah. a study from 1933 that said, nope, they're no more criminal than native born. 1933. But anyway, the, the, the question is, why does the belief persist so strongly if it's just not empirically true? And read the comments and you'll find out. So he has a very <laughs> interesting narrative, Dr. Egnor. His narrative is that America was just fine when it was all wasps, right? White Anglo-Saxon oh Protestants. And wasp culture is American culture, <gasps> right? <sighs> and, and which he, he, he laid it out for us. Like, what is wasp culture? Well, I'll tell you. It's his summary of quote-unquote wasp culture is a strong work ethic, respect for law, belief in freedom of religion and speech, accept, acceptance of Christian ethics, loyalty to family and country, among other things. To which I That's responded, not- loyalty to family? Are you effing kidding me? That's wasp <laughs> culture and not Italian culture? Because he was saying <laughs> that any Italians, that be- when, when they, after they immigrate, they didn't come with that culture. When they immigrated, they adopted, they assimilated and adopted wasp culture. Right. Wait, I um, still don't understand the distinction. They, what is a, okay? White Anglo Italians are white. I'm so confused. Yeah, we're Catholic, though, man. We're not. We're yeah, only. We're, we're, we're also. If you go south enough, we get pretty brown. You know. That, no, I agree. I you agree. get all so, Mediterranean. So he's making a distinction between Mediterraneans and Europeans, really. Well, see, Western versus Eastern European. So that's why I, in one of my comments, I'm like, that's some like. Gangs of New York level bigotry right there. I mean, that's old school, right? That's, that's, that is old school. It's, it's Throwing so rocks at people coming off the boats. It's, it's actually entertaining oh, and, and borderline fascinating. Like, right. like wow. How, how could you be, be born within the last, you know, 50 to 60 years and be walking around with that attitude? Right. And what about the so, meatballs? <laughs> Right. So oh, forget it, Bob. He, I, if he doesn't think we care about each other, he won't get the meatballs. <laughs> so his point is that we can't allow these Muslims into the country because they just will not assimilate into wasp culture. They're oh, no. they're fundamentally un-American. Yeah, the Jews didn't exactly uh, assimilate into wasp culture either, and uh, you know they seem to they seem to be okay. Did they say? Did he say anything about black people, or did he just ignore that? I, uh, I, I couldn't get anything about him. I tried to oh. egg him on a little bit, but yeah, he but he had his <laughs> egg, narrative. Egg, egg, ignore. Egg, ignore. 
It, yeah, so but it was fascinating though, you know. And he basically yeah. said he doesn't want legal immigration. He thinks that legal immigration is, now, wow. is a oh, quote unquote scourge. It's a scourge. He knows that America's only like three hundred years old. Yeah, right? right. Like in terms of what we consider modern society, obviously Native Americans have been here for a long time. Yeah. But that's what I that's what always drives me crazy when people talk about like quote real Americans. And it's like real Americans ain't any of us. Right. Yeah, right. If you're Native yeah. American, sure. But people just ignore they really rewrite history to think that like this was a land for the taking, nobody lived on it, and like the British are really just the original Americans. Right. Yeah. I see. It's say. insane. And and then it's the a, Islamophobia is just epic in his comments. Yeah, yeah. it's ma- it, but it's you know it's epic everywhere, Steve. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, Islamophobia. It's like acceptable to be as overtly Islamophobic now as it was in you know during Jim Crow to be overtly racist. Right. It's just it's crazy how and people can I don't know they 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 kind of convince themselves that it's not about race and that it's not about um heritage and you're like how could it not be i mean i'm against islam in the sense that i'm against christianity i'm well yeah, nobody wants sharia law in the u.s exactly. like I for mean, me it's sure. about religion it's not about people so it's i said i made people. the point i said you know there are moderate Muslims. I happen to know some. I have very good friends Absolutely. and colleagues, for example, who aren't their Muslim. You would never freaking know it, you know. I mean, I mean, other than if you know them, obviously you know what their religion is. But I mean, other than that, where you know where they worship, they're just regular people. I mean, you know, it's it's ridiculous. And his response to that was, to the extent that they're moderate, they're not good Muslims. And to the extent that they're, oh, that's yeah. So either either that's such a. Sh- that's for him. Right, he's gonna, right. He makes that determination. He's insane. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, they're not real Muslims. Like, that's the, the no yeah, true he, Scotsman fallacy, right? They're not real yeah. Muslims. Real Muslims are all these horrible things. And if they're not those horrible things, they're not a real Muslim. So well, he, he's, oh. he's rejecting the information. That's what that is. Oh, I mean, j- it ha- you know, rejecting the information? He basically said, if the studies show that immigrants commit fewer crimes, the study's wrong. Period. Yeah. He just flat out rejects it. Because he doesn't like the doesn't like the results. And you said this guy is a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. People pay him to operate on their brains. Well, Carson would operate on brains too. I know it scares me so much. Being a good surgeon is largely about having technical expertise. Yeah, that's true. I mean, even even a physician. We've talked about yeah. this on the show. Many many physicians are not trained in the sciences. Yeah. You can be pre-med in school and get a minimal education in um, in sort of scientific reasoning and mostly focus on sort of the A and P aspect of biology yeah. and not really have a good understanding of the scientific method. Yeah, you could be a technically proficient professional, and but not a critical thinker, obviously. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to give you a brief announcement regarding our ad agency, Podcast One. They want you to do a brief survey to help us get more targeted ads into the show. Yeah, and guys, it won't take much of your time at all. Less than five minutes. It's short and it's completely anonymous. And in filling out this survey, it's going to help us make sure that the ad companies that we choose to work with are aligned with your interests. So here's how it works. You need to go to www.podcastone.com slash my survey or 
go to www.podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. If you've already filled out a survey in the past, we thank you, but we still need for you to do it again. So thanks ahead of time for taking just a few minutes to fill out the survey. It'll really help us to make sure we're putting the best ads in the show that we can. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, Jay, I understand we're going to start editing people, ba- making designer babies, <laughs> using cri- crispering up all these babies. What's going on? Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Damn time. Well, all right, so before we get into the details, I- I'm mm-hmm. going to ask you guys some questions. I want I want our audience to ask themselves these questions and see if you, you know, get, get a few answers set in your head before we get into the discussion. I think you might be surprised. Do you think editing the DNA of embryos is a good or bad idea? Just sure. Yes. Qu- good. good. Wait, wait, answer the question to yourself, please. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this is more for when we talk about it. You can compare your preconception to after you hear the news item. To what, our what, post-conception. Right. All right. Do you think it's inevitable that oh, yeah. we're going, that we're going <laughs> to, to yourself, be editing DNA? To yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, you're actually behaving. You're behaving like my four-year-old son. Yeah. How extensive do you think oh. that I want cookies? <laughs> <laughs> Good night, Uncle Bob. <laughs> All right. So now, just now that you have a little idea where, where we're going with this, I'll tell you. In, before I I researched this and really thought about it, I thought that we. It was inevitable that we are going to be significantly editing humans, editing their DNA. I thought we would be you know, doing the whole designer baby thing. Um, of course, not just changing the color of their eyes, but doing things like you know removing potential disease vectors and you know all sorts of. You know, Wait, you talk, you're talking germline, germline, or not, or not germline? Germline, yeah. So let's get into it. So a report was published from an international committee. Organized by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, also known as the NAS and the National Academy of Medicine in Washington, D.C. The report concluded that clinical trials on editing the DNA of human embryos, also known as germline editing, to prevent various diseases could potentially be allowable in the future. So the report went on to say that this would only happen in rare circumstances that ha- and there would be a great deal of safeguards put in place, things like that. The report actually said, and I quote, only for compelling reasons and under strict oversight. So examples of this would, would be if, for example, a, you know, couples had a life-threatening genetic disease and if gene editing of the embryo's DNA was the only legitimate option that they had to, to improve the health of their, their future child. Eric Lander of the Board Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts said they've closed the door to the vast majority of germline applications and left it open for a very small, well-defined subset that that's not unreasonable in my opinion. So Eric agreed with this idea that there could be limited editing of DNA, the DNA in embryos for very specific and very serious reasons. But the other side of the coin says that the, you know there are those who strongly uh, talk out against germline editing, and some have called it called for a moratorium on clinical embryo editing. You know, when I say moratorium, they're saying like, no, we're going to all agree we're not doing this. Marcy Darnovsky said in response to the report, we're very disappointed with the report. It's really a pretty dramatic shift from the existing and widespread agreement globally that human germline editing should be prohibited. This person feels that the conclusions that the, that the report states open the door for future germline editing. And that when I say future, I mean looser restrictions and, you know, that slippery slope idea where eventually anything would be okay. 
And there, so this is an example of the fact that there's a growing debate in the scientific community over this. I mean, they're really starting to get into it because the technology is here right. with CRISPR. It, had, I, it should like be I said, addressed. I agree with that. It does need oh, to be absolutely. discussed without question. And, and this is what's wonderful about science is the science, the scientists and the extended community get into very serious conversations about the ethics and, and what's in, in humanity's best interest. Now, I personally thought it was, it was inevitable and unavoidable and, and a part of our human evolution that we were going to do this. And not saying that I completely agree with it. I just thought it was going to happen. I thought it was, it was just one of those things, you know, similar to the singularity, like eventually, it's going to happen. And at some point in some time in the future, we're going to start doing these types of things. But there are people that feel that the technology should be ethically off limits. And actually, in many countries other than the outside of the U.S., it's, it's banned. And the real game changer here was CRISPR. Like I said, CRISPR comes up a lot on the show because you know it has amazing potential and we're seeing advancements already being made with it. And back in 2015, a group of researchers in China reported that they had some success in repairing a gene using CRISPR that caused disease in human in a human embryo. Now, they never intended and absolutely did not use the embryos. Um, in fact, they, they used defective embryos just to make, make sure that the point was there, that they're not going to use them. But after they announced their findings, many people feared that the whole Gattaca designer baby dystopian future thing was, you know, around the corner. In fact, that study was the one was one of the main reasons why that in 2015, the NAS summit actually took place. And that summit concluded that further germline editing is a bad idea until more research was done. And then they also wanted to do safety investigation and impact on society as well. So here's the circumstance that they're saying, and I'll go into more detail now. Like here's a, here's a real world example of this potentially could be when we would use the germline editing. Let's say that there are two potential parents or wannabe parents that both have the markers for cystic fibrosis and germline editing was the only thing that they could use, you know, to produce a healthy baby, you know, even after things like, you know, being able to do in vitro fertilization or even aborting unhealthy fetuses until they get a healthy fetus. Again, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with abortion here. I'm just saying that that's, that's how serious the scientists and the, in the community are saying it should be, how restrictive the use of germline editing should be. But Jay, and, you could also do gene sorting. So you, you, you're not changing the genes. You're just guaranteeing that you're going to get like everyone has two copies of the same gene, two alleles, and if you have if uh, one is good and one is bad, you just say we want to make sure that the kid gets the good one. You know, right. So, you so let's yep. say Huntington's is a better example yeah. because that's a dominant thing. So even if you did gene sorting, you couldn't not have a baby with Huntington's. If, right. Well, depending on if you're both heterozygous, I guess you could. But um, if one of you is homozygous, you're screwed. So I ask you guys, like, let's let's put the question to the table here now. So the the report was saying that they're very much against germline editing being used for the mundane things like physical traits, okay. and you know stuff like eye color, height, superpowers, like flight, and the ability to control time. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, these are they they explicitly said we don't want flying and babies. to bend metal. Right, that they, is beyond yeah. the pale. And they don't want people meddling with the past. You know, I I agree with well, that. Meddling with the past. Yeah, like time travel. Like, oh you know, they, yeah yeah. God, the scientists need, have come up with some cool stuff lately. We need a, we need a <laughs> moratorium on time travel to the mm-hmm. end of the universe. Because exactly. if it if it doesn't incorporate all of time, then it's pointless, right? 
Yeah, it has to. Yeah, all, all <laughs> yeah. space and time. Yeah. Whoa. So I, I thought about it. So now uh, you know I'm sitting there and I'm really thinking, like, how do I feel about this now? Like you know, it, I I do understand why they they want to limit people literally like dialing in what they want their kid to be like because you know I, I could think of a lot of reasons why that would be bad. So so Jay, we have to point out that the the primary objective objection is that once ed- the gene editing is done. It can get ca- it can get passed on, so basically it gets into the human population without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. yeah, so it's not self contained. It's not it's not just not something individual. you're doing to your child. You are introducing that genetic information into the the, the human population. No way you're going to really be able to track that, you know, for too long. You know, yeah. And the lab right. usually when you do things like this, which we don't do with humans, but you mentioned that one case. Like you said, with the humans, they were uh, defective embryos. Yeah. Or if you're using mice, you might um, you might alter their genome so that they were sterile. Sterile, yeah. Yeah, so, But this is what I predict is going to happen is that – and this is following along what I've predicted previously is that the they'll, they'll pick the low-hanging fruit first. So they'll say, OK, for horrible genetic diseases, we will allow either gene sorting or gene editing so that you can correct those horrible genetic diseases if you could prove it's entirely safe you know so we'll we'll get that we'll cross that threshold whereas huntington's huntington's disease sure we can make that go away uh, tay sachs whatever the, yeah. take, take the most horrible genetic diseases and we could we'll edit them away and then once they do that for 10 years 20 years 50 years at some point we will have been doing that to so many babies, curing so many genetic diseases that the safety will be proven. And then the, the safety objections will kind of fade away, which means that the threshold for what will allow will go get lower and lower. Then it'll be more not so horrible diseases. And then what about genetic predisposition to diseases? What about just atherosclerosis or those alleles that increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease? Mm-hmm. You know, how low are we going to go? I don't really see an end to that once it really proves that it's safe and effective. And maybe there shouldn't be. So, but, we, you know, is that going to be 100 years from now, 200 years from now? It's hard to say. But I, because, you know, obviously we'll take. <laughs> It'll take generations because it's like, you know, you need to know that people, you know, live their life without becoming horrible monsters, right? right. I mean, obviously, yeah. sci- scientists will be confident about that. But, I mean, we're talking about convincing the public. It's kind of like test tube babies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, been, it's like GMO or, yeah. you know, GMO foods. Like people yeah. still think we're going to frank and food. About. They think mm-hmm. we're going to incorporate fish genes into our own fish DNA. From, yeah, from eating a tomato. It takes a couple of generations for it to become accepted and people will realize it's not Frankenstein's monster. And and then, the you know, the, the objections will fade away. Well, what about this? What about this? Instead of doing ger- – is there anything that you can do in, with germ line editing that you just simply can't do – to to an embryo uh, that's already that's already set. What do you mean? And then, well, and so instead of doing germ germline editing, you you just you just fix a baby. Uh, you 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 directly edit their genes without doing any any germline that- editing. But that's still going to. No, I know what Bob is saying. Bob is saying oh. you wait for a later stage and then you edit um, the stem cells that are going to make the liver or whatever or the brain. But you don't edit the cells that are going to make the sperm or the eggs. Right, so exactly. their kids don't get the don't get the edited 
gene, but you it'll be enough of it in it their body. But so many of these catastrophic disorder. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, Steve, but so many of these catastrophic disorders, if you were only going to target like a certain organ system, um, they're just so widespread that like if your lung has, you know, uh, cystic fibrosis turned off, but your liver and your esophagus still has the blueprint for cystic fibrosis, I think you would still get cystic fibrosis. It might be an, a different version of the disease, but I don't know if you could pinpoint every somatic cell and none of the germ cells. It well, it depends. Like obviously, okay. for things like in the brain, you could you could just target the brain. You don't really need to do anything else. So yeah. it, it it you know it's really disease by disease. Like how plausible is it to do the somatic cells enough of them that you'll. And again, for some of them, it's just that you're not making something. You just need enough of your cells to be making it and you're fine. You know, it yeah. doesn't even have to be every somatic cell. Seven. Uh, I understand that NASA is seriously considering a mission to Europa. Seriously considering it, not just a lunar reconnaissance mission, but actually a lander mission. Yay, finally. Finally. Awesome. They received- yeah, but it's not going that deep. It doesn't yeah, matter. It doesn't need, Come on, doesn't this has need been a, to. It does. Yes, this has been a does. fight from within wow, NASA for ages. It has been, but we're we're here. I mean, I don't think we've had anything kind of like this since the uh, the Viking program going to Mars. I think that this is what we're going to equate this one to because NASA received their science report on the Europa lander concept just a few days ago. And I'll just read you some of the highlights from their own uh, news brief on this. Uh, a report on the potential science value of a lander on the surface of Jupiter's icy moon Europa has been delivered to NASA and the agency is now engaging in the engaging the broader science community to open a discussion about its findings. It's actually a, a pretty uh, a pretty cool thing to read. I started reading it. It's 250 pages long. I haven't, haven't nearly gotten through all of it, but I, I skimmed it for, for a lot of uh, little details and things. It's, it's, it's very cool, very easy to read. So, And uh, you find it at NASA's website. So uh, a little history on this. In early 2016, in response to a congressional directive, NASA's Planetary Science Division began a pre-phase A study to assess the science value and engineering design of a future Europa lander mission. Now, NASA routinely conducts these kinds of studies. They're known as Science Definition Team Reports, or SDT Reports. And long before the beginning of any mission to gain an understanding of the challenges, feasibility, and science value of any given potential mission. In June of 2016, NASA convened a 21-member team of scientists for the SDT, and since then they deliberated and now have their notes ready, and they've handed them over to NASA just the other day. The report lists three science goals for the mission. The primary goal is to search for evidence of life on Europa. Yay! The other goals are to assess the, hab uh, the uh, habitability of Europa by directly by directly analyzing material from the surface and to characterize the surface and subsurface to support future robotic exploration of Europa and its ocean. And then the report also describes some of the uh, instruments that are going to be expected to perform measurements in support of all of these goals. Um, the, Europa multi the Europa flyby mission, which is in development right now, is set is scheduled for launch, not exactly, but sometime in the early 2020s. And they think a lander mission realistically probably would be about maybe 2030 or 2031. So it's not like, you know, we're going to be talking about this again any, you know, any 
data coming back anytime really soon. And you know how these things kind of get pushed, you know, and dates around. So it, it is a little bit far off, but it's proceeding and it's proceeding in earnest. And uh, we have scientists working on it. They've given us their report and, you know, a step in the right direction for, for what I think is a very, very important, if not, you know, I mean, my gosh, the, to find life on, on another planet or moon is just, you know, I mean, how, how much bigger in science does it get than that? Evan, this yeah. is the real meaning of the phrase, drill, baby, drill. I agree. <laughs> drill in Europa. I, I want to get the little Europans. We have to find out <laughs> what life but is like there. It, it's so much more realistic, right, to, to do a lander near a plume. Like we already have access to the yeah. deep ocean, or at least we think we do. So it makes more sense to, to go that route. I, I like the part. As part of the report, if you go and read the report, there's uh, chapter two is about the historical context, searching for signs of life in our solar system. And, of course, the thing that they're paralleling it closest to are the Viking missions on to Mars back in the 1970s and how much we we learned from that um and any mistakes that were also made which you know they'll look to obviously not you know learn from those from those mistakes but um I, and when you look back at the video of that time and certainly Carl Sagan was very heavily involved with those missions you kind of get a sense that this is kind of the the next generation of those Carl Sagan disciples in a way sort of carrying on that that same spirit in a sense with this one and they made uh in the report actually specifically said that in, in regards to uh, in regards to Carl Sagan and um i i like the fact that they uh that that they made that you know prominent in this report and they're kind of using it as their mantra it's important to know and if we have the ability to we have almost a duty to go out and find the life if it's there i agree Go to Europa. Definitely. Woo-hoo. That's a, that's the, our best chance, I think, in our lifetime of finding extraterrestrial life. Mm-hmm. That should be our main damn goal in space exploration right there. Europa, yeah, that definitely there. should be a high priority. Come on. Yeah. Highest. All right, Jay, it's Who's That Noisy time. Yeah, last week, guys, I played This Noisy. has a Doppler shift quality. I like to it. it. Yeah. It's very dark. You know that high pitch and it kind Menacing. of tails off yeah. and more in yeah, a low. Yeah, it's, it's like a Doppler shift in in a minor key. A Doppler shift of a uh, British police car going by. It does have yeah, a little like, bit of a, a European siren vibe to it. Yeah, it's like a drunk British police car. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> or like a funeral oh, guesses, dirge though, guys? by a British yeah, police car. That was my guess. I don't know. Okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. So. Would you believe if I told you that that is a tornado warning signal? Uh, okay, I believe yeah, you. Yeah, but is it somebody driving by a tornado warning signal? No, not at all. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with the Doppler effect. So this okay. was sent in by a listener named Harlan, and Harlan wrote, he said, the sounds are intended to sound disconcerting and off because they are meant to alert the citizens to impending natural disasters. If you are interested in potentially airing this, I can do further research, blah, 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 blah. Where um, is it? Because So this is a... Tornado warning signal in Chicago. Gotcha. Because the tornado warnings in where I grew up, I heard them all the time growing up because Dallas gets hit by tornadoes a lot or that DFW area. They have a vibe to that, but they don't have that weird minor key 
untuned yeah. piano tone. I don't know if that's but a regular thing that it's a Chicago um, thing. It's a Chicago. It's a Chicago thing. From what I found, it, it's a lot of people from Chicago wrote in and said it, so that they've all heard it. Oh, huh. not many. No, no emails from really anyone else saying from that they, they've heard that. Yeah. yeah. But I, wait, actually, I'm wrong. I did get a couple of emails oh. from people that, that were, I think, outside of Chicago. But they used to live but, there. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so the winner from last week is Nate Hahn, and he said today's noisy is a, the Chicago tornado siren. Hahn! A notable guest. Uh, this was from a listener named Nick Campbell. Nick said, I work at a chemical company that produces titanium dioxide and titanium tetrachloride. This week's noisy is the major alarm that sounds when there is some sort of accident or chemical release. <laughs> oh, my gosh. For, for example, a crack in piping caused by chlorine gas to be released. Employees must report <laughs> indoors to the nearest rally point shelter. I hope that never happens. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just a drill, but that's it. Oh gosh! It's a weird sound, you know. It's all—it's kind of spooky in in a sense, but I think it's meant to just catch your attention. I want to yeah. hear it again. Yeah. And Evan, I think we always hope that something we have to do a drill on doesn't actually happen. Well, okay. <laughs> Damn, man, Strippy, that is—that's right? that's kind of creepy. I think it's kind of beautiful. Should have yeah. played that at the haunted corn maze, Jay. Uh, yeah, oh, that would have yeah. worked. Yeah, but people from Chicago would go running. <laughs> <laughs> so like, thank you the all. Where's checkpoint? <laughs> <laughs> thank you all for sending me in your guesses. Uh, what the heck is this? was sent in by Bob w- Wagner. What is that? Damn, that sounds man. an awful lot like a theremin being played down to its lowest tone. That is a very theremin vibe to me. It does, and that's not correct. Mm. Mm-hmm. Dang it. That's my get that's your one hint, Kara. I expect <laughs> you to win next week. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, so if you have an idea what that sound is I just played, or if you heard something awesome this past week, email me at WTN at theskepticsguy.org. Don't email me at info because I'm not looking for who's that noisy's there. And I might, I might not see it. I might miss it. Don't email me to anything else other than WTN at theskepticsguy.org. Yeah. yeah. Good luck. Okay. We're going to do one email, but this is actually going to be a bunch of emails. As predicted, I got a lot of responses about our discussion on the the Super Bowl from last week. I knew it for a bunch of reasons I knew this was going to be a hot topic. One, because I when I blogged about it, it sparked a lot of comments. But also, whenever we talk about something that has to do with statistics, it's just really hard for people to wrap their minds around, including us. It's just not intuitive. Like when we talked about the uh, Monty Hall problem, that always sparks – a huge discussion. Uh, and this wasn't, you know, this was sort of in our, in our opening banter last week. It wasn't really a formal item. And so there definitely is a lot of nuance that, and, and I think a lot of people weren't sure exactly what my point was. So let me go over it again and then I'm going to go a little bit deeper. So again, there's a really important empirical question here. And that is, is there momentum in sports? Right? Do, do teams do better because they're doing better? Or is it really a drunken walk? You know, is it really just randomness? There's a sort of an answer for sports in general, but there's also an answer for each individual professional sport. 
So this came up last week because of the Super Bowl win. Uh, I, I wanted to make a couple of points about it, and they are distinct points. Um, so I do think some people got confused over what elements of the point I was making uh, at a time. So one is hindsight bias. Hindsight bias means that we interpret the significance of events or the cause of events once we know what the outcome is. Uh, so for example, and I used as an example of hindsight bias, the election, the recent election, when Trump won, then people looked back and said, oh, that's because the Democrats are out of touch and Trump was tapping into this, et cetera. But if Hillary had won, they would have said, oh, that's because, you know, Trump, you know, had these characteristics and the, and the demographics are going against the Republicans now. You know, they, they would have fit the explanation to the outcome once they know what the outcome is. And that is both in kind and in magnitude. You know, big effect has to have a big cause. But the narrative can flip. And then some emailers pointed out supporting that position that the narrative flipped on election night. You know, the pundits were all when, – when it looked like Hillary was going to win, they were talking about how the Republican Party is crashing and the demographics are going against them. And then when it looked like Trump was going to win, they talked about how out of touch the Democrats were and you know what I mean? So they, they literally flipped their narrative in the course of a few hours to, to fit the facts as they were as they were evolving. A lot of people thought that that means that these factors aren't real and that's not the point at all. All of the factors that – you know, people might point out may be legitimate. It's a question of emphasis, right? It's saying this was the cause of the outcome, when in fact, all of these things may have been in play regardless of what the outcome was. And, you know, the, and the other aspect of this is that the outcome may have been very narrow, especially if it's a, bi a binary outcome, you know, one person wins or the other person wins or one team wins. If the binary outcome if one side edges out the other, then the narrative all becomes about how they were dominant and inevitable and all the factors in that one direction rather than saying, okay, there were factors in both directions and this one side eked out a victory. That's hindsight bias. It's hindsight bias is shifting your narrative and your explanations once you know the outcome rather than looking at the whole picture and, and also taking into account that the outcome may have been quirky or narrow or whatever. The football term also, well, for sports fans, is called Monday morning quarterback. That's that's yeah. when everyone talks about the games from the prior Sunday, and they're like, "Oh yeah, of course I you knew this was going to happen." This. Yeah, should have yeah. done right. <laughs> right. If I were or twenty twenty hindsight. So, yeah. uh, but there's the, there was an entirely separate point that I was making that really just applied to the football, not to the election, and that is that the perception of momentum in sports is largely an illusion because if you look at the data and I didn't have time to delve into the data last week, but that's partly what I want to talk about now. Psychologists have been asking this question, is there momentum in sports? So, and psychologists break it down into two sub questions. One is what psychologists call psychological momentum. And there's no question that psychological momentum exists. And all that means is, is that what's happening in a competition affects the psychology of the athlete. You know, their, their mood, everything that does change as they do well or, or as they do poorly. And so there's no question that psychological momentum exists. The question is, does psychological momentum actually affect the outcome of the game? So again, a lot of the emailers were basically justifying psychological momentum and were not really addressing the 
the the point, which was, yes, yeah, sure, but does psychological momentum have a measurable impact on the outcome or not? And so let's look at the data there. Uh, again, I don't think we have a 100% definitive answer, and you'll see why in a moment, but I do think that we have a pretty good answer. So uh, one, if we go sport by sport, let's look, let's start with basketball. Uh, and there the, the momentum question comes down to shooting baskets in a row, right? If you make a basket, are you more likely to make a basket on the next throw? Or if you miss, are you more likely to miss on the next throw than if you had made one? Does that, does that confidence or getting in the groove or whatever make it more likely for you to, to keep the streak going, either good or bad? So for, that's called the hot hands effect, right? And we've talked about this on the oh, show yeah. before. Now for, for 20 years, the research showed that there is no hot hands effect. That when you when statisticians crunch the numbers, the they don't see any effect there. However, there was a paper a couple of years ago mm-hmm. by statisticians, and this tells you how counterintuitive statistics can be. They said, "Oh, you know what? All of the statisticians were have been doing it wrong, and they've been making this subtle error in how they're breaking down the numbers. And when you fix the error, it turns out there is a slight hot hands effect that then comes out of the data. So." I looked to see if there was any response to that, to see if a consensus has emerged or if this is still debatable. I couldn't really find anything that would tell me that there is a consensus here. But even if we assume that they're correct, we're still talking about a small effect. And so there is still this massive disconnect between the perception of momentum and the reality. If you look at football, uh, essentially the data does not show a big momentum effect. Uh, again, the, the conclusion is stated more in the negative, not like there is no effect, but the data does not show that there is an effect. Or if there is an effect, again, it's tiny. In baseball, I think the data is probably the best in baseball. There really is no momentum effect in baseball. And for example, researchers looked at uh, the frequency of perfect games and no hitters. Now, because mm-hmm. you're dealing – with kind of an isolated pitcher versus batter battle, the, the statistics in baseball may be a little bit more pure than in other sports, uh, in a way, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, and so there's, you know, lots of, sti- baseball is a game that just generates a lot of statistics. And what researchers do is they modeled, uh, based upon batting averages, right? Average batting mm. averages. They modeled if in computer simulations, how so they, they when one for example they ran 2000 simulations of baseball between 1876 and 2009 they said there should be 243 no hitters over this course of time and and then they looked at the actual mm-hmm. baseball record in that time period right and they found that there were 250 single pitcher no hitters that's and so that was close. off by less than four, less than off, it was off by less than 4%. That's damn close. What that tells you is there's basically no hot hands effect in baseball. There's no momentum. Yeah, that's probably not a significant okay. difference. Yeah, it's just not. It's just not. Yeah. Even if it were statistically significant, it's a tiny so effect, but it's whatever. It's, yeah, it's just, it's insignificant in terms of the magnitude of the effect size. So if you look at all the data, there basically is either a small or no momentum in professional sports, actual outcome of the game momentum. There is psychological momentum, but not outcome of the game momentum. 
Now, having said that, people are like, yeah, but what about this and what about that? You know, it's like, okay, but there are these other effects. Sure, yeah, injuries play a role. The, some coaches are better at making adjustments. Yeah, the Falcons made stupid calls, you know, late in the game. There's no question. All of those things are true. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's this other thing, this other intangible thing, psychological momentum that has an effect on the outcome of the game. Now, this doesn't mean, again, some people objected to the idea that this doesn't mean that professional athletes are robots, are immune to psychology. Again, they have psychological momentum. It just doesn't affect their performance measurably. And there are psychologists have speculations about why that might be, including the fact that they may, uh, that the psychological effects may have a lot to do with confidence and Professional athletes may just have such a high baseline confidence that they're just knocked, they're not knocked off that confidence easily. Um, yeah. and the other thing, which I think we talked briefly about, Kara, I think you brought up briefly last week is that when you get really good, when you hyper train at a, at a, at a, a physical activity, it becomes very subconscious. Yeah, it's it's like automated. Yeah, it's so automated. Like if, you're a, if you're a concert pianist, like it, it's going to take a lot to make it so that you actually pause in the middle of a. Yeah, you could actually play on even if you get distracted by something. Exactly, it would take a yeah. big deal to make you screw up. Exactly, that's a really interesting effect. Um, like uh, I, Steve, remember we? Uh, I remember years and years ago we figured out how to solve uh, Rubik's cubes. Um, so we kind of, you know, you, you have these algorithms of twists and turns that you do to get it, to get the colors to match. And we didn't touch it for 20 years. And then when I picked it up again, I realized that I could, I could almost solve it still. I could solve the first two rows. And, uh, so I would try to, I would try to, you know, do what I remembered. And when I try to remember the precise moves that I made, when I tried to analyze it, I, stop myself. I couldn't figure it out. I had to do it completely unconsciously. When I tried to understand every move I made, yeah. it fell apart. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's yeah. like paralysis analysis, right? So it was so, it was so cool. You, <laughs> you have something so internalized that you can't vet it. You know, it's just like, it is what it is. and You can't dissect just it. Just let it take over. Yeah. yeah. Let's go on with science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. These are three news items, but there is a theme to the news items, and I care, I think you're going to like it. <laughs> the Yay. theme is the brain. Oh, the crap. brain. She's going to go last. <laughs> the like brain. Undue stress. <laughs> yeah. Kara might be going last this week. Okay, here we go. Item number one. A new study supports the hypothesis that comprehending a word that relates to motor function involves the relevant part of the motor cortex, not just the language cortex. Item number two, using MRI scans, researchers have been able to predict which high-risk infants will go on to develop autism with 90% accuracy as young as three months of age. And item number three, Engineers have developed brain electrodes that are 1,000 times more flexible than previous electrodes, allowing for a stable connection that does not form scar tissue. Bob, go first. All right, so we've got this first one here. Let's see. New study supports the hypothesis of comprehending a word that relates to motor function involves a relevant part. Wow, interesting. So but I'm not sure if I'm buying that. Um, kind of yeah, interesting. Let's look at the second one here. 
the high-risk infants will go into develop autism. 90% accuracy. Yeah. All right. I can kind of see that because we know, I, you know, that doesn't surprise me. Um, as we all know, it's not related to vaccines. Um, and that's got a strong genetic component probably. So it doesn't surprise me that they could potentially uh, see it very young. Um, okay, that's good. Um, I'm buying that one. Let's see. Um, you got these brain electrodes, a thousand times more flexible. Stable connection, no scar tissue. That's fantastic. Wow, that would be so, so nice. These, they all seem kind of plausible to me, but so I'm going to say that, um, I just, I don't think the motor cortex is going to be significantly involved in dealing with, uh, word understanding. So I'm going to say uh, that that's fiction. Okay, Jay. So this one about the motor cortex, you know, comprehending the word, that to me, it seems so, blatantly not true but it's fascinating if it is true i mean the, the what would be actually happening there that the motor cortex is communicating probably to the language cortex i would imagine no i don't know i mean you just think that they wouldn't be mixing like that um okay next one uh the mri scans uh these research researchers were able to predict which high-risk infants will go on to develop autism so my of course you know i'm looking at this saying well what are high-risk infants just they're at, they're at high risk for developing autism. Obviously, I didn't know that that people were high risk for developing autism or not. I didn't know that 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 existed. But okay, yeah. So what Bob said was, you know, using the MRI scan, you could see that there might be structures in the brain that would would point to it. Okay, that's interesting and and seems plausible. And then this last one, the uh, one about engineers developing brain electrodes, I absolutely believe that. I have no reason to think they didn't do it. I mean, a thousand times more flexible than previous electrodes. Yes, I, I could see that. I could see that with new uh, materials. You know, they came up with something. So it's between the first one and the second one. There's just something about that first one that seems so damn obvious, right, Bob? Like the, the motor cortex is per, <laughs> is perceiving, it's comprehending the word. You mean the one Bob brain? chose is fiction? Yeah. yeah. Well, it says that it involves the relevant part of the motor cortex and not just the language cortex. What the hell is going on there? Ah, all right, I agree with Bob. That was a fiction. Okay, Evan. Okay, the motor function... Involves the relevant part of the motor cortex, not just the language cortex. If they're saying it, it passes through sort of the motor f- cortex and uh, almost sort of on its way, like a pathway to the language cortex is the two are linked somehow. Uh, the next one, MRI scans to predict with high risk infants will go on to develop autism. 90% accuracy. Ooh, as young as three months of age, using MRI scans at three months of age. How developed is a brain at three months? I have, I, I, it's hard for me. I don't know. Kara might know. What, wouldn't that be kind of early? Uh, in other words, the brain's still doing, uh, I don't know how much change goes on. It must be significant, uh, you know, the, that you're reading something at three months of age, but, you know, comes six months, comes 12 months, you may, the same MRI scan may come up with something different. I don't know about this one. Uh, the brain electrodes one a thousand times more flexible than previous electrodes. I have no problem with that. Stable connection does not form scar tissue. Okay, I suppose so. I'll I'll buck the trend. I'll say the MRI scans ninety percent accuracy, three months of age. I think that one's the fiction. I think that's too young. And Kara. I mean, my first instinct is to say that the 
brain electrodes is the fiction, just off the bat. There's a hypothesis that comprehending a word that relates to motor function involves the motor cortex, not just the language cortex, and a new study supports that. Absolutely. I would never in a heartbeat flinch at that. Um, association is so important in the brain. Nothing is like truly, truly focal. Yes, we've got Broca's area and Wernicke's area, and we do have studies that show damage, destroy Broca's area. You can't physically talk. But those things are very close together. Um, Broca's area is frontal, but it's a little lower. Um, motor cortex is kind of a strip that's just right above it. And then you have some language stuff that's happening kind of in the temporal area. I get the question here is that it's comprehension versus motor speech because speech is involved in the motor cortex. Talking requires the motor cortex, but comprehension, it's, they're just so intimately related, um, that I absolutely think that that would, um, that would show up also in the motor cortex, the comprehension side of things. I also think that the the autism one is quite reasonable. I don't know if 90% accuracy is right. It's it's hard for me to point to that. But I think that researchers have developed markers of autism. I can't remember what, but something about like brain size, maybe a certain area of the brain is supposed to be bigger. I, I, we definitely know there's like a um, uh, mirror neuron situation. Like there are some physical markers. Three, you're right, three months is young, Evan, but... And then uh, engineers have developed brain electrodes that are a thousand times more flexible. That to me is crazy. A thousand times, that's three orders of magnitude more flexible. Electrodes are already really flexible in the brain. Like you can get them down into places when you're doing these like Parkinson's um, surgeries. You can get them down like into the areas that you want them to. And not forming scar tissue has nothing to do with how flexible the electrodes are. This is why I don't get this one. Scar tissue happens in the brain. And if we could figure out how not to form scar tissue in the central nervous system, we could solve a lot of problems with my, you know, with... um uh, connecting severed axons and, and nerve tracts, which is a huge problem with like losing motor control. So I don't know. This one just seems like weird. Like it doesn't even really make sense to me. So because of that, I'm going to go with that. But if I'm wrong, don't hate me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So good. So you guys are, are covering all your bases, which is awesome. But now I'm scared because I'm on an island. <laughs> all right. Well. <laughs> Only for a few minutes. Since we're all over the place, I guess we could take these in order. Uh, Number one, a new study supports the hypothesis that comprehending a word that relates to motor function involves the relevant part of the motor cortex and not just language cortex. Bob and Jay think this one is the fiction. Evan and Kara think this one is science. And this one is science. All right, guys. Kara's right is exactly right. Never doubt the whole networking thing in the brain. This is cool. Now, I said, you know, supports the hypothesis. So it certainly doesn't prove it. But the prediction that was made by the hypothesis was supported by the study. What they did is very cool. They used uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. I love that. They used that to inhibit the functioning of the motor cortex. Ooh, while they while they gave yeah they gave <laughs> uh, the subjects a task, the task was to d- tell if a word if a series of letters formed a word or didn't form a word. Now some of the words were related to physical tasks involving the the, the upper extremity, and some were not. So the hypothesis mm. was. If the motor cortex is at all involved in understanding and processing the language, when we inhibit the motor cortex, it'll affect the motor words, but not the non-motor words. 
Cool. And that's what they found. That is that's uh, exactly what they found. Yeah. Magnetic stimulation knockout studies. They're yeah. so cool. It's fascinating. It's great. it's great that they can even come up with that uh, study. It's clever. Yeah, it's clever. That. It's very yeah, clever. Very clever. What the hell is going on there, though, Steve? That's crazy. I know. Well, it's crazy because you're not a, you're not a neurologist. And I think that's it's right. crazy, but it's so not crazy. It that's is not. Way. So the thing is, I you know you you have to get away from this simplistic module conception of how the brain works, where this piece of the brain does this one thing. The brain is so massively networked. Yeah, there are modules, but those modules are networked. Even even care like Broca's area, the recent mm-hmm. fMRI study showing that oh my god, there's language processing happening with speech that's like not in sync with the Broca's area. So there's something more complicated going on. The, like the language area of your brain, Wernicke's area, that's sort of the lexicon, right? That's where you, it's how your word salad area. Yeah. That's, that's when it, yeah, when it's, when it's damaged, you get word salad because that's the part of the brain that translates ideas into words and words into ideas, right? If the idea is an image, how does Wernicke's area understand the concept mm-hmm. of an image? Well, because it recruits and networks with the image center of your brain. So how does Wernicke's area know about a physical concept? Well, it has to involve those parts of the brain that involve that physical concept. So that kind of totally makes sense when you think about it that way. Yeah, you could do a very similar study where you knock out visual. Visual, you know, yeah. And perception. You, although it would be harder mm-hmm. to – do this exact test because you have to see yeah, the words. Yeah, you have to do it auditorily. Yeah, whatever, something. The visual words, yeah. But <laughs> what's also interesting, what I found really fascinating about this, think about it because you have to, this gets back to the Daniel Dennett book about how we evolved language and consciousness and all that stuff. And there's, there's, there's this theory of embodied cognition, which we've talked about on the show before. So this kind of supports the embodied cognition notion. Maybe the toehold we had in language was using are using our hands to communicate physically very simple physical concepts of action or physical relationships and then as we you know as our language area developed it evolved out of these physical ideas which were Im- literally embodied in you know our physical selves and the physical world and then that sort of we bootstrapped language and consciousness out of that. So we think in terms of these embodied concepts. And for example, you know, if you say that somebody is above somebody else, you could mean that they are just hierarchically above them, that they're in charge of them. But we still use a physical term that has, you know, that has a physical uh, analogy to it being physically above somebody or your mood is down. You know, we have all of these really purely abstract concepts that we understand through some kind of physical analogy. And it may be partly that that's because that's exactly how our language evolved. It evolved out of communicating physical relationships. And so it would make absolute sense that our language area would understand these concepts by networking with the relevant part of the brain that is either involved in that either motor action or sensory input. And then this, that was the hypothesis and this study supports it. And I think the coolest part of the study is how they did it. Yeah. That's also (laughs) uber cool. So cool. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to number two. Using MRI scans, researchers have been able to predict with high risk infants, which high risk infants will go on to develop autism with 90% accuracy as young as three months of age. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. The rest of you think Mm. this one is science. And this one is 
The fiction. Good job, Evan. It Evans. is the fiction. Whoa. It is. <laughs> Three months yeah. seems awfully young. That's the key. Three months Man. is awfully young. What so, is it? Please tell me it's like six months or nine months. Twelve. Oh, so they they did the MRI <laughs> scans on six-month-old, 12-month-old, and 24-month-old uh, children. They're high-risk, Jay, because they have an older sibling with autism. Okay, so that statistically go. puts them at higher okay. risk. And what they found was that you, they could predict with 90% accuracy by the 12-month-old because they, what they were looking for is the change in the brain from six months to 12 months. And uh, the, the brains of children who went on to develop autism, the uh, cortex grew much faster between six and 12 months than the neurotypical children did. So – which is interesting. So it, it is a bigger brain. It's phenomenon. bigger, yeah. So they grew, okay. it grew faster. So, but of course, if, if you have to compare six months to 12 months, you can't make that comparison until 12 months. Yeah. Now there are other studies which show that from clinical criteria, you can highly predict which infants are going to go on to develop autism by six months. That's currently the earliest that I found. So three months would be really early. I, 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 I would not be surprised if we tricky. eventually get there. We might eventually get there, but that would have been pushing the envelope significantly. Yeah, especially with something just anatomical like an MRI scan because the brain is kind of young at that age. It mm -hmm. does need to, you know, it is sort of more of the later development where we see it because it doesn't really manifest until age two or whatever because, you know, even though the early signs may be there, it really comes out when like the cortex really develops. Does, um, if you're doing an MRI scan on a three month old, are, do you um, put them to sleep? Because it's not fMRI, right? It's just imaging. This is just a straight-up MRI. Yeah, children are usually done under anesthesia. Yeah, I figured. Mm. Because I know I've seen in some like clinics, they have like a kid. Um, it's really cute, like a fake MRI that they teach kids to lay in yeah. before they have to do the real fMRI. But you have to be old enough to understand how to practice. Right. Oh, so right. that's more for like toddlers. Yeah, you can't move, so you can't do it on somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All of this means that engineers have developed brain electrodes that are 1,000 times more flexible than previous electrodes, allowing for a stable connection that does not form scar tissue is science. This is Oh, my God. Great. Explain this to me, Steve. I'm so confused. Cool. So <laughs> Must the, be all that scar tissue. Yeah. These are ultra-flexible <laughs> ultra <laughs> probes, and the technology is called, Bob, you're going to like this, nano-electronic thread, or NET. I like it. These are ultra, <laughs> very, very and tiny that. and ultra-flexible. They say they are more than a 1,000 times more flexible than previous probes or electrodes. Um, now, the reason why the, the hyper-flexibility is so important, Kara, is because they, these are tiny electrodes. They're designed to record from a single neuron. Whoa. Now, when you get gotcha, down to that gotcha. level, when you get down to that level, the normal pulsations of the brain will move the electrode so that their relationship isn't stable. And the relationship with scar tissue is that when the electrodes move, it activates the glial cells, which forms the scar tissue. Now, in their studies, these electrodes, because they're so flexible, were able to maintain a consistent relationship to the neuron. So they didn't shift over time. And over the months of the study, they did not form any scar tissue. Now, previously, these like really single neuron electrodes would last hours. Yeah. You know, they don't last a long time. And Well, usually and, people uh, I mean, is this this is in an animal or in a human? Uh animal. 
Okay, yeah, because yeah, usually when you're like patch clamping, when you're just doing one neuron, you're doing it in vitro. <laughs> like yeah. it's so much easier. Doing it in animals really hard to do as it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, they're in they're in the animal testing phase. So uh, okay. So this is awesome. This is what we this need. This is insane. This is but what this I've is been waiting for. This is what, I've been, yeah. this is what I mean, we need to get the mental control of robots. You know, this is we talked about recently the locked in patients. This is what we need for mm-hmm. the for the locked in patients. So you can you can understand why the MRI scan seems way more reasonable. Yes, that's why this, I included this one. This is mind one. blowing. That's why I included this one because it's mind blowing. It is. It's per. It's exactly what we need. Steve, so I'm hoping this, this really pans out. Twenty years. Where could this specific development? lead to besides yeah i mean just besides my control like could you have one of these attached to every neuron control well that's that's no. a lot yes i mean that would be crazy <laughs> i mean eventually but this is like self-replicating auto navigating ex- extrapolate is the matrix right that's the extrapolation I from this like where it. you have a complete interface <laughs> with your organic brain <laughs> again no theoretical reason why they can't work it's just a technological question yeah. at this point yeah. in time it's purely technological Sweet. yeah well, there are reasons why the Matrix can't work, but not the core foundation right. of the Matrix. You wouldn't have any muscle tone if you were in the yep. Matrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic, so that, that, classic, <laughs> re- classic reply to that is, yeah, absolutely. That, that part was not plausible, but yeah. the, but the fact muscles. that you but the fact that you are interfacing with the computer seamlessly so that you think you're in a virtual reality that's indistinguishable from reality, that's plausible. Absolutely, yeah. and that you would lose your. Shot. I mean, we get we're we close to now. that even with a headset. Yeah, so. yeah. And how much can we you know pay to get this right now, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Oh, Not it's free. Great. Yeah. If you're a mouse, it's become an experimental rodent. Free for rodents. <laughs> <laughs> it's all very very cool stuff. Good solo win this week, Evan. Good job. Yeah. Good job, Evan. Good. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> all right. This one sucks so I'm with hard. You guys. All right, Evan. Give us a quote. Ineffective therapies are always harmful. The greatest danger lies in the risk that a still-treatable disease is not really being treated at an early stage by first trying an alternative therapy. In the worst case, this can lead to the death of the patient. This is more common than you might think. And that is from the website at the Association Against Quackery, uh, which is in the Netherlands, and this was a, this society was established in 1881. It is considered to be the oldest continually running skeptical organization in the world. Ooh. That's awesome. And they specialize on quackery, alternative medicine, and a lot of the things we touch upon on this very show. Yep. So eight, a 1881. I love wow. that. I yeah. love that an organization's been around continuously for the better part of what 130 plus years. Yeah, that's longer than us. We were formed in 1996. Yeah. That's so more than to... 100 years more than us. <laughs> yeah, we have a little ways to catch up. Absolutely. If they started a podcast in 1881, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> we would never on. catch up. <laughs> we, we, I think we have more podcasts than them, so I think we're okay. <laughs> we're, doing, we're, we're doing our part. All right, thanks, Evan. Thanks. Thank you all for joining me this week. Yeah. You thanks, got it. Doc. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. 
Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.